here to save you from sitting down. Let's, let's remain, I'm sorry, I should have said something. Remain standing, I want to read uh, from uh, Leviticus, our text this morning. Uh, I know you, you think a, a guest pastor comes, the last thing he's going to do is preach from Leviticus. Um, <laughs> I'm, gonna not, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read uh, the first two verses and then jump down to uh, verse 29 and read through the end of the chapter. All right, so hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year, once in the year, because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's, let's be seated. Um, it, is, it is considered uh, the most boring, uh, least desirable, and most often skipped book of the Bible when uh, we read or decide to read through the Bible in a year, uh, each and every year, uh, and, and therefore it's probably the, the least read uh, book of the Bible, even though it's, it's the sixth most often quoted book of the Bible, and I would argue the most important book of the Bible. Um, and it's quoted that often, and I believe it's the most important for this simple reason. Leviticus actually answers the question, how can God dwell with his people? And that's the goal of creation. It was the goal of creation, and that continues to be the goal of redemption today. And of course, we know the answer to that question when we ask ourselves, you know, how can God dwell with his people? We know the answer is Jesus. But by taking the time to dive into the book and in this particular chapter, I believe it proves to be much more rewarding than we could ever uh, imagine as we read through its pages because a closer look as we read through the book itself, it provides us a better understanding of the gravity of the problem that we faced as people, as mankind, that problem that had to be overcome. And it also Uh, gives us a better understanding of the overwhelming significance of the solution that God himself put forth and provided to make a dwelling with his people, make dwelling with his people possible, both 
both a, a present reality and also a future reality as we think about today as well as um, in the future to come. And we're only going to look at chapter 16, but I hope that um, as we go through this this morning that it will maybe encourage you or urge you to do your own study of this wonderful book and maybe no longer skip it uh, in your yearly Bible reading. And I hope to have a few practical takeaways as well. Um, but before we jump in, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, all right? Uh, Father, would you by your spirit allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part? We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these words from Leviticus, and we, I ask that you would help us to understand them. And may we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. And therefore, uh, may we be more confident in and rest more fully in and trust more deeply in Him and what He has done for us and gifted to us. And I pray these things in Him who is our full and final way of approach. Amen. The first word in the Hebrew text of Leviticus is the word and. And that means that everything that is to follow, that is to come, is really a continuation. Not only of what happened in Exodus, but also what has been happening since the creation story and the beginning of the redemption story found in Genesis. So I want to briefly go back and set the context of the book to help us understand it a little more fully. And, and it's not going to be anything new to any of you, I'm sure, but God created the world and everything in it. And that included man. Uh, he tightened his focus and brought the whole uh, picture into Eden, into the garden, where he placed man not to, to not only live, but to more importantly, dwell with him. And there's much more than just his presence that's involved in that dwelling with. It means more than just being present. It also involves the extent to which God engaged himself with man and fellowshiped with man and, and communed with him. And, we'll, and you'll hear more about that as we, as we move along. But, but God, of course, laid out special rules and expectations there in the garden of how man was to live. And the key one being not to eat of the fruit uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. God said if he ate it, he would surely die. There's emphasis there. He would surely actually die, die. And then God created woman and he gave her to man and placed her in the garden. And they at that point had every opportunity to live happily ever after. Living in that perfect fellowship. Dwelling in the presence and, and fellowshipping with God. But we know the story that that, that didn't last. Unfortunately, the, the two questioned God's Word, they, they listened to Satan who tempted them to believe that despite the fact that God had lavished, lavished upon them everything that they needed and had lavished his provision upon them that somehow Satan told them and they believed that God was withholding something from them. And he also caused them to judge, or I'm sorry, to doubt the judgment that God said would take place if they disobeyed. And when they ate of the fruit, they immediately knew the mistake they had made. They immediately knew the sin that they had committed. And after their own attempts to cover themselves and to hide themselves from God, he graciously approaches them. 
He graciously seeks them out. He graciously questions them. He graciously comes to them and then pronounces a remedy, his remedy, in a way to regain that which they had lost. And he was going to regain that through a seed that, had, uh, that would come through the woman, an offspring that would come through Eve. But the damage, unfortunately, had already been done. The consequences were to be experienced. God had spoken, and he is just, and he is righteous, and he is good. And so he, he must, being a God who does not lie, needed to fulfill those consequences. And they could no longer dwell with him because the, the unholy cannot dwell with the holy. The clean cannot dwell with the unclean. And, so, and he who is holy cannot dwell with they who are unholy. So they must be kept um, absolutely apart. And the chasm is great. And so he clothes them, and then he sets them outside of the garden. He casts them out of the garden and places two cherubim at that east gate or at that east entrance, making sure that they cannot re-enter and eat of the tree of life and therefore spend eternity in that position of separation. So again, God being gracious. But in the midst of their progression, so in, they're cast out and, and they're, they're sent eastward. And in that progression eastward that included the flood and included the Tower of Babel, God comes to them again to the people and he's gracious to them and he enters into a covenant with Abraham and says that that seed that he had promised Eve is actually going to come through Abraham's line. And so Abraham and through Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob, the promised people come forward, he brings them out, and and they eventually end up in uh, captivity in Egypt. And though he's not absolutely dwelling and fellowshipping with them, his presence has not departed from them. And so he comes to them in Exodus 6, and we read that through Moses, God announced that he was going to deliver them. He's going to lead them out of captivity. He's going to redeem them and claim them as his own. And he's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. And so God leads them into the wilderness, and he sends them to Mount Sinai. And, and, and Mount Sinai is that place where Moses is able to ascend into the presence of God to dwell in his midst and receive the law. God, again, being gracious, says, I'm going to call you out. I'm going to give you this land, and now I'm going to tell you how to live in that land. And that brings us then to Exodus 25. And in Exodus 25, God instructed Moses to tell the people that they were to build a tabernacle or a tent of meeting, a place in which he would dwell and the purpose was, again, for, them to, for him to dwell in their midst. And the words are different. Uh, tabernacle means a place where God dwells. Tent of meeting means a place where God meets with his people. Even though they're used interchangeably, they mean a little different uh, things. But it described where the divine and the human would meet together. So it was actually the home of God. It was a place where he dwelled and and lived, but it was also the way in which people would approach him. Had that twofold meaning. So God was going to do what he had not done since prior to the flood and dwell in the the midst of his people. And, And the tabernacle became this portable Sinai that pointed back to Eden. But then something happens in Exodus 40. God says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses 
was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the people are in this immediate crisis. Right? God has said he's going to dwell with us, but now not even Moses, the only one who was able to ascend the mountain to Sinai, is no longer able to dwell in his presence. And so you can imagine the people going, how is this going to work? You're going to dwell with, with us and in our midst, but now nobody can approach, not even Moses. What are, what are we going to do? And that's where Leviticus comes in. Because in Leviticus, we see that the only one who is able to approach and enter into God's presence is a God-appointed mediator. It's a high priest. And that God-appointed mediator must come into the presence of God through God-appointed means. One author called it through the doorway of atonement. And so that's why I've titled this this morning, Approaching the Lord, and why our outline is going to look like this. We're going to look at the wrong way of approach. This is what all in Leviticus 16, the wrong way of approach, the right way of approach, and then the perfect and final way of approach. The wrong way, the right way, and the full and final and perfect way of approach. Um, So let's start with the wrong way. I've already read from verse 1 and 2, but I want to read them again. The text begins with the words, The Lord God spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. You've got to go back to Leviticus 10. Uh, Nadab and Abihu um, had taken their censers and they had placed what the Bible says is strange or unauthorized fire within it. They take coals from the altar of burnt offering and put incense upon it. They apparently didn't do that. We don't know What was strange about it? It was just unauthorized. That's the better word because it wasn't what God had instructed them to do. Um, And the result was death. Immediately the fire from the Lord had come down and consumed them. And it's interesting if you go back to chapter 9 and when fire falls from heaven, uh, the people shout and fall on their faces in worship. But here in chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu are killed and that fire falls, Aaron, their father, holds his peace. He keeps quiet. And we wonder why, why one reaction and why another reaction. And one commentator put it this way, the closer a man is to God, the more attention must be paid to his holiness and the glory of God. The unspoken implication, he says, is that the sons of the high priest ought to have known better than to act so presumptuously. And therefore, really, what was there to say? There wasn't really anything for Aaron or anyone else to say. God had said, this is how I want you to approach. And Nadab and Abihu didn't do it that way. And so in that moment, he acknowledges his holiness, his set-apartness, his holy otherness, that he desires for glory to be brought to him, and what they had done didn't do that. They had decided to do something else on their own, in their own way. They had, he had prescribed a way, but they said, no, we'd rather do it another way. And they contaminate the, the tabernacle in doing so, but they also contaminate the tabernacle because they died within it. And you got to go back to the first 15 chapters and read through those to understand what that means. So I'm laying that out before you to encourage you to study the book, all right? Um, now, many people have trouble with that today. We have trouble with God treating Nadab and Abihu in that way. We don't understand how he could do that. But I think 
we have a problem with that for two reasons. One, we, um, we've downgraded his holiness. And we also have this propensity to downplay the significance and the severity of sin. And truthfully, how we feel about how God treats Nadab and uh, Abihu is irrelevant. Because God is transcendent. God is magnificent. God is holy and righteous and good. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly just. And our sin, as defined by Shorter Catechism question 14, that is, any want or conformity to or transgression against the law contaminates and pollutes and creates guilt and shame and separates us from his holiness. And it ultimately leads to death. So the fire that consumed Nadab and Abihu that day, it wasn't the first time that would happen, nor would it be the last, because judgment will, would, will be, has been and will be experienced due to the folly of sin. And I use that term folly purposefully because folly means lack of good sense. Folly means criminally and tragically foolish. It means evil or wicked. It means excessively costly and unprofitable. Perfect word to describe sin. So sin is folly and separates us from him, and the question is, how can we approach him? How can that which is unholy, and how can that which is criminally, those who are you know, committed that which is criminally and tragically foolish come before a holy God. What is that right way of reproach? We need to know what that right way of approach is. And fortunately, God tells Moses to tell Aaron that there is a specific time and a specific way for them to do so, to approach him, and that way must be followed. And that's what happens from verse 3 through the rest of the chapter. And it coincides with this day that was to be set apart on a yearly basis on the Jewish calendars is Yom Kippur. This coming year starts at uh, October 4th and, and finishes on, in the evening of October 5th. And on that day, every year, that's important, every year Aaron and the great high priest after him would remove their flamboyant, um, spectacular robes and things that they wore on a regular basis and they were to exchange those things. They were to take a bath and then they were to put on this very simple wine, uh, white linen outfit that included a turban. And once they were dressed, they would take an unblemished bull and they would kill it. And they would collect the blood and then they would uh, go get a censer and again, they would fill that censer with coal from the altar of burnt offering and they would put incense on it and then they would take the censer and then he would take the blood and then he would progress into uh, through the holy place through the through the veil that by the way had cherubim on it go through the veil into the holy place and then go through the next veil again that had cherubim on it and into the most holy of holy places and once he was there that that smoke from the incense would fill the room and it would fill the room because the presence of the Lord, he tells us in verse 13, the presence of the Lord would dwell there above the mercy seat. And so in order to not see the Lord, that smoke had to be present because if he saw the Lord, he would die. 
So it was for his protection. Again, God being gracious. And then he would take his finger and he would dip it in the blood and he would smear it on the east side of the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. And then he would take his finger and do it again and then he would uh, sprinkle blood in front of it seven times. And then he would leave, again, turn and go the opposite direction and go. So he's come in this direction, and by the way, it's east. I'm sorry, it's west. And then he turns around when he leaves and he goes back east. We can't miss that. Um, So he'd leave the tent of meeting. Two goats would be brought to him. He'd take two stones, mark one for goat one and one for goat two, put them in a sack, shake them up, pull one out. The first one was for a goat for the Lord. And a second was for uh, the goat for Azazel, who we don't know who that is or what that is, but it was going to be used as a scapegoat. Um, he would take and, and sacrifice that goat and, again, do the same thing. Walk east into, uh, I'm sorry, walk west, walk west into the holy place and into the holy of holies and do the same thing with the blood on the east side of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and then sprinkle seven times in front. And he would uh, turn around, he would come out, and then he would mix the blood together and spread it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering uh, and then sprinkle it seven times in front of it. And once that it was complete, he would take the other goat for Azazel and he would put his hands on him, pre- uh, press into it, and then it symbolized the transference of the, sin of, uh, the sins of the people. Uh, his sins, you know, his, the bull, sacrifice of the bull is for his sins. Now, this, these, the, the goat is for the sins of the people. Um, and they would, they would uh, take that goat, and somebody that was already assigned would take that goat out um, and take it into the wilderness and would either leave it in a place where it couldn't return or they'd shove it off a cliff so that it would die. Um, while all that's taking place, the priest takes a ram and he sacrifices that ram, and then he mixes the both as, as, a, as a burnt offering, and he takes the fat of the bull and places it on that, and it burns. The guy comes back from the goat. Uh, they take the rest of the bull and the rest of the goat that was sacrificed. Uh, someone pre-assigned would take that outside uh, and burn that. Then those two guys would take off their clothes, wash them, bathe, put their clothes back on, and enter back into the camp. It just wears me out thinking about it. And I know you, it, it does you too. You're, you're thinking, okay, we get it. But it's important. Every step, everything that happens is significant. Or the Lord wouldn't have put it into place, right? I mean, it, it's the right way because the, the Lord commanded it to be so. But there's also some other things that are, that are important here. One, you know, this sacrifice provided atonement. In other words, what happened was when, when um, through this process, the sin of the priest and the sin of the people would be what's called propitiated. And that simply means that God's anger would be appeased. His favor would turn back toward the people. Their sin was also expiated. And that simply means that their sin and guilt would have been paid for and removed. And then finally, they would have been cleansed and purified of their sin. Because sin, no matter if it's active or passive, no matter if it's intentional or unintentional, known or unknown, um, it all defiled and, and, and uh, stained and polluted and contaminated everyone and everything. We've downplayed it. 
Sin was significant. And so it was through this sacrifice, that once a year sacrifice, that everything in the people would be cleansed and washed and decontaminated and purified. Now there are a few, I want to draw your attention, I've already alluded to some of these things, but quickly, I want to draw your attention to this. First, the symbolism, remarkable. Right, the, the tabernacle pointed eastward. And so for the priests to come in, right, we remember the garden, they're cast out, they move toward the east, the cherubim are set, so when the priest comes back, he's coming back into the presence of God, coming from east to west through the cherubim that had been set at the garden. And he's moving back in to bring himself and the people back into the presence of God. They had to travel in that easterly direction. That, that's not coincidence, Second, the blood on the mercy seat. He, he places the blood on the mercy seat. God's presence is, is above the mercy seat. And so God symbolically is looking down through the blood that's on the mercy seat to see the law that he had given them. The law that they had transgressed. Showing that he remained faithful and merciful. He was a covenant making and covenant keeping God. And then third, they, they were to treat the day that I read in the final verses, they were to treat the day as, as a Sabbath. They were to afflict themselves. In other words, their hearts were to reflect what was going on inside. So they were to acknowledge their sin, repent of their sin, mourn, you know, mourn their sin. And, and they were to reflect on God's desire. His, despite their sinfulness, God desired to, to dwell with them despite what they had done. He would remain faithful despite their unfaithfulness. But as they're reflecting on this year after year after year, right, it, be, it begins to dawn on many of them, right? If this truly provides our atonement, if we're truly you know, if our sins have been propitiated, our, you know, if we've, been, we've, we've experienced the propitiation, the expiation, and the purification, why are we doing this every year? Why does this happen year after year after year if it's been done? And the light bulbs would have started going off. This has got to point to something more. There's got to be something more than this. As burdensome as this, this is, something has got to be ahead and of course, we know that that perfect and final way of, of approach is the Lord Jesus. The day of atonement points to Jesus. He fulfills the day of atonement. Listen to these words from Hebrews 9 and 10. We read part of this uh, uh, in our, uh, or Jason read part of this is our uh, assurance of our pardon, right? It's a great choice. But listen to the writer of Hebrews which, by the way, is a commentary on Leviticus. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven himself, uh, itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once 
for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, and not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, or for, not for his sins, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ is the great high priest. Christ's priesthood is greater than Aaron's priesthood because his, his priesthood right, is, is unlike any other. Being sinless, he didn't have to atone for his own sins. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sins. Right? He didn't put on that clean white, that white garb. The eternal son took on flesh and dwelt among us and was obedient to the point of death on the cross. He was not the, only the perfect and final um, high priest, he was the perfect and final sacrifice. Right? Through, his, through his life and death, through his death, our debt was paid. Through his blood, we have purification of our sins because he was our scapegoat. Our sins have been placed on him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And he was cast out, cut off, and died, murdered for us. And our, our sins, Psalm 103 says, our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. It's because of his perfect work that God's favor has been turned toward us. It's because of Christ that he desires and is, by the way, fellowshipping with us right now. We are dwelling with him. We have entered into the holy of holies at this very moment and boldly approached the throne of grace because he has already gone in. Right? The writer of Hebrews says that he has entered in and he has taken an anchor, our anchor of hope, and planted it at the throne of grace. And the end of that anchor, that rope, is tethered to each one of us and to his church. And though we are kind of wandering about, right, feeling as though we're out to sea, we, we have actually already been brought home. Because of him. And so we're able to approach because he is our great high priest, is even now interceding for us. So the question is, how do we respond? Right? We, we've got to respond to that in some way. And I'm not real creative. Um, I'll just tell you that. So I looked at Hebrews chapter 10 to find application. 
in Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 27, we find four things that the writer says that, that we should do or we should hold on to uh, in light of this truth. And the first is to draw near, which I've just said we're already doing. Uh, but we're to draw near. He says, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We are to draw near and enjoy dwelling with God. We're to commune and fellowship with him. We're to abide with him. We're to commune with him. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So again, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We've been forgiven. We can dwell, he can dwell with us. We can dwell with him. We have nothing to fear, absolutely nothing to fear because of what he's done for us. There is no sin so great that can't be forgiven. There is no sin so small that doesn't need forgiveness, but there is no sin so great that can't be forgiven. There's absolutely no reason for those in Christ to fear coming before the Lord God because of what he's done for us. So we should draw near. Secondly, we need to hold fast. The writer says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. We're called to persevere in the faith, right? Because it has nothing at all to do with what we do or don't do. It has nothing to do with our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. It has nothing to do with the sincerity or insincerity of our hearts. It has everything to do with what Christ has done for us. We've just seen it in the baptism. Jude did nothing. We've done nothing. Our salvation is in him alone. We need to hold fast to that. And we need to strive to become, right? Hold on. Well, that, that, that's coming up. So thirdly, stir up. He says, stir up. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Right, we've been called to live lives of holiness. God was gracious. Here's the law. Here's how you live as those who are redeemed. So there are expectations. There are responsibilities. We're to live as becomes the followers of Christ. We are to, to live in such a way that, that we are, because we are becoming what we have been declared to be in him. But we're to do that together, not individually. We're to stir one another up. Right, we're to seek to stir one another up, to, to seek to, to, to progress in our sanctification. That comes by the Spirit. But we do that with one another, encouraging one another to love and good works. Right, to love God, to love our neighbor, to love one another. We're to hold, hold that. We're to, again, going back to the holding fast, we're to persevere in the end. We, we can persevere in the end because we're doing this together. And then finally, he says, meet together. He says, actually, he says, we are not to, to, to not neglect meeting together. Our, our, our lives as believers begins right here. It begins in corporate worship. It's here in worship that we're, we're discipled. You're being discipled, right, under the word of God on a weekly basis. It takes place through the simple means of grace, hearing the, the preaching of the word, coming to the table as you come to the table. Right, again, being conformed into the image of Christ. We're, we're fellowshipping together. We, we pray with one another. Something deeply significant happens here by his spirit as he equips us for ministry in this place. And by the way, if I might be so bold as to say that that, ca that cannot happen virtually. We need to be together. So the bottom line is... Although we live in a day where, where everything is just about you know, being epic, right? doing great and grand things for God, being world changers. In fact, what, what we're called to do is to live in the ordinary, 
day-to-day, the ordinary day-to-day life, resting in Christ, persevering in our faith, encouraging and loving one another, and worshiping together as the people of God. And then having gathered, we go and scatter, taking the gospel to all nations. And out there, we're beat up, and we're bruised, and we're battered, and what do we do? We come back. Having wrung ourselves out, we come back that we might be filled again. This is an amazing gift. It's an amazing gift that should never be taken for granted because it cannot be improved upon at all. And go back to the very first thing I said, right? It's what we were created for. And thanks be to God that he is about bringing about what he what his purposes are for us, right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now by your spirit use the word that has been preached to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And may the seeds of truth that have been sown in weakness be planted deep into the fertile soil of our hearts that we might be sanctified and show forth fruit, which is your will for us in Jesus' name. Amen.